O to grace, how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. Father, thank you for the grace that has appeared in Christ Jesus that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in this present age. Thank you that you are sovereign in the affairs of men and nations, that everything is happening according to your plan. Thank you for the freedom that that gives us, and thank you for the challenge it sets before us to be faithful stewards of the gospel. We're coming today, Father, at different places in our walk with you, some brand new believers, others who've known you for years. But wherever we are, we know that you would say something to each one from your word. And so, Lord, like Samuel has said, Lord, speak, I listen. We're listening today to what you've written here and how you want to apply it to our lives. Thank you that you sent the Spirit just as you promised. You fulfilled the promise of the new covenant by causing the Spirit to live in us and helping us to live a godly life and even to understand the Scriptures. And we looked to Him today. I looked to Him and asked that He would not just help me to understand it, but that He would fill me and use me, that the words that I speak might be pleasing to you. And we'll give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Would you take the Word of God this morning and turn to the book of Revelation? If you're with us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter. You know, everyone wants to study the book of Revelation, but it's one of the more difficult books in all of the Bible. And sometimes people say to me, well, Pastor, it's just like so complicated. Well, listen, the Word of God is like learning math. You learn your numbers so you can add and subtract. You add and subtract so you can multiply and divide, and that builds on algebra and geometry and trigonometry and calculus. As a pastor, I have to, each week, teach some brand new people who've never opened the Bible before their numbers. And other people, they're learning calculus, so to speak, in the spiritual realm. So don't worry about the things you don't understand. And this is no easy passage this morning, but God has something for you if you will let him speak to you each week. You can see today's subject is two witnesses from another place. Now, the Bible is very clear that the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. In the twinkling of an eye, God's people will be caught up. It's harpazo, but in Latin, it's raptura, and so we get the word rapture, a theological translation of the Greek into Latin. But we have used that word to describe a great event that's before us. And after the rapture happens, the worst time this world has ever known or ever will know is going to begin to unfold. And that description of events is given in chapters 6 through 19, describing this final seven-year time frame, Jesus said, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Jesus in no way can exaggerate. And while the tribulation period, the first half is called tribulation, but in one place it's called great tribulation. But when you hit the middle point, it's called the great tribulation. You could say greater, greater tribulation. And that's the section of the revelation that we're in. But this is not an overstatement because Jesus can only tell the truth. In essence, he's saying in this verse, you can take all of the famines, holocausts, diseases, earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, wars, and put them all together, and they don't even begin to compare to this time that is before us. 
Now, with that said, I want to begin reading Revelation chapter 11. I hope you bring a Bible. You'll get much more out of any sermon I preach if you have a Bible in your laps. If you don't have one, come to a Meet the Pastor, and we will supply one for you. Revelation 11, beginning now in verse 1. Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouths and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. They will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now, for the benefit of those of you who are here for the first time, and since we've been out of the Revelation for nearly a month, let me just remind you of the broader context, and then we'll focus on the immediate context. If you remember, the theme of the Revelation is that he's coming again. He's coming in the clouds. The theme is found in the opening chapter of the seventh verse, as is the divine outline. There's a few books in the Bible where God actually gives us the outline for the book, like Acts 1.8 or here, Revelation 1.19. John is instructed by Jesus, therefore, write the things which you have seen. That's the past. That's the first chapter as he sees the glorified Christ and the things which are. That's the present. That's the seven living, functioning churches that he writes about that received this letter in the first century, and the things which will take place after these things. That's the future. That opens the fourth chapter and takes us all the way through the end of the book. The things which shall take place after these things. That's the section of the book we're at. It opened in chapter 4 with these words, after these things. So it's like he gives us the outline, and he doesn't want you to miss when you come to the after these things section. So he says, after these things, after the churches, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here. 
And I will show you what must take place after these things, twice over. It's a picture, as we saw, of the rapture of the church. The door is open. The number 24 we studied, it's a representative number in Scripture of a very large group. And these 24 elders are representative of the church that has been taken up into heaven. Jesus first comes in the rapture. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, where is he in heaven? There you may be also. But at the second coming, he literally, actually, physically comes to the earth and his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's what the prophets say. And so here in chapters 6 through 19, we are discovering an unprecedented time in human history. And Jesus said, if those days had not been cut short, no one would have survived it. Now, I told you that it's very important for us to be able to understand the revelation. We need to understand something about its structure, something about its architecture. And if you remember, the book of Revelation has a series of judgments that come first with the seals, then with the trumpets, and finally with the bowls. And they're in three sets of seven. And so here's a picture of this seven-sealed scroll that the Father hands to the Son. It's the title deed to the earth. Adam lost the farm, so to speak, when he rebelled against God. And so Satan legitimately said, bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world if you'll just worship me. And that was a legitimate offer because they were Satan's to give. But Jesus is going to reclaim what God intended for us to rule over. And so we pray in the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a literal prayer that is someday going to be fulfilled. And so we saw the first six seals. The first four were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The fifth seal was this huge number of believers who are saved, people who had never heard the gospel prior to the rapture, never heard it before in power and clarity. And so they don't experience the delusion. They hear the gospel and this huge number believe. Uh, then, but they're martyred person after person. Their heads are cut off, literally. Then the sixth seal, we saw some cosmic changes. And as with each set of seven, between the sixth and seventh, there's a pause almost to allow us to catch our breath so we can look back and see what else God is doing during this time. And in a few instances, we'll not just look back, we'll also in this pause look ahead to what he is about to do. And so, as you can see on this chart, between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there's Revelation chapter 7, where the 144,000 people are saved. And those, uh, it's back a chart, if you will. You went a little too fast for me. There we are. Revelation 7, 144,000 Jews are saved. And these Jewish men preach the gospel to the world. They're miraculously converted, probably like Paul on the Damascus Road. And they preach the gospel, and so many people are saved. John says you can't even count them, a, a number that no one could count. And then the seventh seal is opened, and it opens up, if you'll bring up the next slide, the seven trumpet judgments. And again, once again, the same structure, six trumpets. And between the sixth and seventh trumpet, there's a pause. And that basically is summarized in Revelation 10 through 14, where we are today. Now, if you remember, when the first trumpet is sounded in Revelation 8 and verse 1, there's silence in heaven for 30 minutes. 
Now, the trumpet and the bowl judgments happen after an event that takes place right in the middle of this seven-year period. The middle event is called the abomination of desolation. And when that event happens, then the trumpets and the bowl judgments, but unlike the seal judgments where you can only see one at a time, when God reveals the trumpet judgments, they see all seven trumpets, and in the seventh trumpet, the seven bowls that are contained in that seventh trumpet. And it just takes your breath away. There's total silence in heaven for 30 minutes because of what is about to take place. And so when the seventh trumpet is ready to be sounded, we read in 11.15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And you think the book should end there, but it doesn't, obviously. But it's like an announcement that it is about to end because what is going to follow is going to bring in the very, very end. So here's a big picture, if you will, in this next chart. The rapture of the church, that's the next great event. And then there's a period of time, days, hours, weeks, short period. And then there's a man who shows up on the scene. We know him best as the Antichrist. And he will be a one-world leader. There'll be a one-world government. That period of time is described by the prophet Daniel as being seven years long. And Jesus repeats what Daniel does, as does the Apostle Paul. And that seven-year period is divided into two halves. In the first three and a half years, Israel as a nation is protected by this one-world leader. But he does something in the middle of the tribulation where they know for sure he could not possibly be the Messiah. And then he will persecute Israel like they have never seen before. In Israel, though they have been under the oppression of the Gentiles since the time of Nebuchadnezzar, the Bible calls that the times of the Gentiles, the last 42 months of these centuries of oppression will be the worst that nation has ever seen, culminating in the battle of Armageddon that will usher in the second coming of Jesus to heaven. So that's kind of the big picture. So this morning, we're in between uh, these uh, trumpet judgments where we have this pause, and he's looked back, and he's told us what has been going on, and then he's going to give us another glimpse of what is happening through these two witnesses. Um, now, let me just say that what we're going to study today about these two witnesses and a temple and all this stuff, for it ever to happen, the Jewish people would need to be in the land of Israel where they would even want to rebuild a temple. Now, centuries ago, hundreds of years before Jesus came to this world, there was a prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Ezekiel. And he looked down the corridors of time through the future to the future, and he said this concerning the Jewish people, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. And Ezekiel the prophet, as we'll see again, signals this time as happening at the end of time, before Messiah rules on the earth. And what the amazing thing is, is that we are seeing this prophecy fulfilled in our lifetime. Amillennialists and people who think there's no future for Israel, they, they just said, oh, these promises were conditional. God's done with the Jews. And that was easy to say in the 1800s. In 1895, there was 25,000 Jewish people scattered across the land of Israel, max. 
Now there is nearly 7 million of the 12 and a half million Jews upon the planet. God has brought and is bringing year after year more and more Jewish people. The anti-Semitic spirit grows, it spreads, and they keep coming to Israel. And I meet Jewish people when I go to Israel. Why do you come? I have no explanation except to say, it just was in my heart to come here. Who do you suppose put that in their heart? I'll tell you, a sovereign God in heaven. And he is fulfilling this prophecy in our day, in our lifetime, which is a reminder to us that God has not abandoned Israel. The covenant he made with Abraham, he will keep, and that we are that much closer. There's never been any prophecy that has ever needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come for his church. Whereas the second coming is a predicted program. There's a lot of things that have to happen, like an antichrist, like a one world government, like a temple that is rebuilt, like a temple that is defiled before the second coming can happen. But when you see prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, prophecy that God says will happen at the very end of time, then you know that you are living in those days where the rapture of the church is close. Verse 1, then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Listen, chapter 11 can only take place if there are Jewish people back in the land who want to rebuild a temple, a temple that is going to be standing in this seven-year period where it can be measured. Now, if you go to the place where the temple once stood, you'll see this today. It's called the Dome of the Rock. It was built between 685 and 691 A.D., and supposedly to commemorate the place in which Muhammad got on his winged horse and flew into heaven. Uh, it's not a mosque. There's a mosque next to it. It's a monument. It's a monument honoring Muhammad. Now, if you've been with us in our study of Revelation, it was on top of these 37 acres, the most contested piece of real estate in the world today, that God's temple once stood. In Titus, in 70 A.D., just as Jesus predicted, literally came in and he destroyed the temple. Jesus said twice over it would happen. First on Palm Sunday when he came into Jerusalem on a donkey and he wept over the city and he said, why? And among those why answers is the fact that God's temple is going to be destroyed because of the unbelief of Israel. And then a few days later, when the disciples ask him about it again there on the Mount of Olives, he repeats it. Let me give you the repeat in Matthew 24. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple, not building, but buildings, underscore that in your mind, the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Not one stone. Now, I suppose the question was precipitated by what he said on Palm Sunday. And they're curious. On Palm Sunday, he said, it's all going to be destroyed, not one stone upon another. They said, Lord, look at these buildings. And he repeats himself, not one stone upon another. Now, again, this is important. We have been living in the last days, according to Acts chapter 2, since the day of Pentecost. The last days began when God sent the Spirit. Peter said, what you're seeing in this day, the day of Pentecost, is what God said would happen in the last days. And that's important because in one sense, the church has always lived with the expectation that Jesus could come at any moment. 
That's one term. Nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled for the rapture to take place. But the latter day is a term that we studied in Daniel that we see in other prophets refers not just to the last days that started at Pentecost, but to the very end of time before the second coming when Messiah will come and rule and reign upon the earth. So keep that in mind because God is describing what he is going to do in the latter days when he brings the Jewish people back into the land. And I'll show you that in just a moment. Now, again, this is a very specific command in verse 1. Then someone, then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God. That's an impossible task. You cannot possibly measure a temple today on top of the temple mount because there's no temple of God to measure. Now, if you go to Israel, you will see this picture that we often see. It's called the Western Wall. And on the left side, you will have men as they face the wall who will be praying. And on the right side, you will have women. And if you walk up to any Orthodox Jew, if they are kind enough to answer you, and if you look a little Jewish, they might answer you. If you don't, they'll probably just walk away. But if you ask any Orthodox Jew, what are you praying for every day? Why are there people here 24-7 praying at this wall? They'll all give you the same answer. We are praying for the temple on top of this platform to be rebuilt. That wall you see is not the temple wall. That was the retaining wall that Herod built. He built this retaining wall, and he put all these arches in the dirt and filled it up with dirt and made a flat platform on the top that today, of course, is all concrete. But the retaining wall, they're praying at the retaining wall, and that section of the wall that was closest to where the temple stood. And of course, um, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 24. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, we studied that in Daniel 9, and it might be helpful if you're new to the Bible of this church to go back and listen to the messages on Daniel 9. But right in the middle of this seven-year period, the Apostle Paul said it, the Apostle John will illustrate it for us, Jesus taught it, Daniel prophesied it. Right in the middle of this seven years, this one world leader is going to go into the temple of God, and he's going to defile it. And he's going to do something else with that. He's not only going to claim to be God. Paul says he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. But he's also going to do a second thing, which we'll study later on, that will be foolproof positive that this man is a fraud, that he cannot possibly be Israel's Messiah. And then they're going to turn against him, and he's going to turn against them. And not just him, he's going to get the nations of the world to turn against them. Now, the temple needs to be rebuilt for this particular act to happen. If you try to rebuild the temple today, there would be a massive war, I tell you, in the Middle East. 100 million Arabs surround this little piece of land the size of Delaware. There would be a massive war. Yet God says it's going to be rebuilt. Now, it may not start until after the church is raptured, and this man of peace comes with all kinds of miracles. He's going to delude the peoples of the world, and he may convince or demand the nations of the world to let the Jews rebuild it. I don't know. 
But there are a couple of different theories, and let me just explain to you in terms of the actual location of the temple. Let me just say, if you go to Israel next month, God willing, we're going to a place called the Temple Institute. It's right there in the city of Jerusalem. It's run by all these Orthodox Jews. What have they done? They've reproduced all of the temple furniture. They've reproduced all of the temple garments. And if you were watching Fox News last month, most Jews can't identify what tribes they are from. But in the providence and the sovereignty of God, the Levites can. And so all these young Levitical priests, as they showed on Fox News, are out in the fields and they are practicing the sacrificial system. Now, it made some people upset that they were killing animals and stuff, but they are preparing and being trained for a temple that is going to be rebuilt. Now, if you looked at the temple in Christ's day, this is what it would look like. On one end, you have what's called the Solomon's portico, and you read about that in Acts where, you know, a guy said, you know, he's a beggar, and Peter says at this place, silver and gold I have not, but what I do have, get up in the name of Jesus, walk. A lot of stuff happens there. Uh, in the middle is the temple itself. Remember, the first temple was built by Solomon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar tore it down. It began a time known as the time of the Gentiles. After 70 years, they come back. And God, ever before it happened, 150 years before it happened, he predicted that there would be a king who wasn't even born yet. His name would be Cyrus. And he would let the Jewish people go back and rebuild the temple. And so the second temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel. And then it had a facelift by a guy named Herod. There's seven Herods in the Bible. Herod the Great. And he built a magnificent temple. It was breathtaking. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the early first century. Now, there's different lists of the seven wonders of the world, but this was considered on most lists to be one of the greatest, most magnificent buildings anywhere on the planet. It sat in the middle. And then on the far end, you had the fortress of Antonio, the Fortress Antonia. It was the place where the Roman officers were headquartered. And when there were big events in order to keep peace, they brought all these soldiers into the land because there would be an influx of some million Jews onto the property. Now, that's what it looked like in Jesus's day. Again, this was 37 acres of land. It's a big piece of property. Now, where is the temple going to be built? Well, there's two credible theories. One I will mention to you first that has absolutely no scholarship and can't possibly be right. And it, as you bring up the next picture, um, one theory says here's the Temple Mount as you'd see it today. And here on the south side of the Temple Mount, there's a place called the City of David. When David came in, uh, he conquered a certain Canaanite people known as the Jebusites. And he did it through a plan God gave him to function as a city. You have to have a water supply, especially in the Middle East. No water, no, no life, no, no city. And so he brought his men through a tunnel, and you can go through that tunnel today, it's called Warren Shaft, and they came up into the city and they overthrew the Jebusites. And this became the city of David. At one point, David in his pride counted the army. God said, you shouldn't have done that. He was putting his confidence in the flesh rather than in the living God, so he counted the soldiers. And so God, if you remember, sent a plague, gave him one of three choices, sent a plague, and um, so David needed a place to sacrifice. And so there was a guy named Aruna, and he bought the piece of land above the city of David, which is what we call the Temple Mount. And up there on the Temple Mount, David sacrifices, and the plague stops. 
Later on, his son Solomon, in the same place, will build the temple. And it's up here on the top of Mount Moriah, by the way, that Abraham offers Isaac as a type of Christ. I think further down, but nonetheless. So this, this is a really important place in biblical history. So some Christians... Uh, well, really, the theory came in the 1980s by a guy who was not a Christian. His name is Ernest Martin. He was with a group called the Worldwide Church of God. And used to be 20 years ago, you go into airports, convenience stores. They had these magazines everywhere called The Plain Truth. It was written by a cult called the Worldwide Church of God. They denied the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, the doctrine of the Trinity. They were just heretics. But people bought their magazines, didn't buy them, they were free. And they, you'd find them everywhere. And they had fascinating little articles. The problem was they were filled with error. And so this guy, Ernest Martin, came up with the idea that, oh, the temple is going to be outside the current Temple Mount. Therefore, we could build it now. Nothing stopping us. There wouldn't be World War III. And then in more recent years, an evangelical guy by the name of Bob Kanuke, is how most people pronounce it, not Bob Cook, Bob Kanuke. And uh, nonetheless, he sells sensation. You know, he, he found, he says, the, the anchor of the Apostle Paul when he wrecked there in the island of Malta. I mean, he sold all kinds of books on sensationalism. And he has sold this theory to a lot of evangelicals. And the reason I'm even wasting my time on it today is because so many of you have asked me about it. It has no credibility whatsoever, and I could spend an hour on it giving you 10 reasons why it is impossible for the temple to be built there. There's a second theory, as the next picture brings up, and that is the theory that the temple will be built right here on the Dome of the Rock. There are traditional Jews who say the temple sat literally, physically, actually where the Dome of the Rock is. And so wanting to build their temple in the same spot, they say that somehow has to come down. Look, if they laid a finger on that piece of property, again, there'd be World War III in the Middle East. Um, a third view, and many biblical scholars, Jewish and Christian alike, uh, as you can see on this next one, say it's actually to the right in between the Fortress Antonia and the Dome of the Rock. There's a little cupola of sorts called uh, the Dome of the Spirits. And they say it should sit there and there'd be about 150 feet between the Dome of the Rock in this third temple that is going to be constructed. Hey, look, even the northern view that I think has great credibility, Dr. Kaufman, a Jewish archaeologist and biblicist at Hebrew University, posited the, the, the theory has great credibility for two reasons. Number one, this would line up the future temple with the eastern gate, and we'll look at that in a moment. And it would allow the Messiah to come right to the eastern gate without going left or right. And number two, the water source comes to this part of the temple. And so there's an aqueduct that flows all the way from Bethlehem to this northern section of the Temple Mount. And that's where the water was used in the first century for the whole sacrificial system. You say, well, why is the eastern gate lining up with the temple important? Well, here's a picture of the eastern gate. And again, if you were standing today on the Mount of Olives, you'd be looking across a valley called the Kidron Valley, also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Decision. And there's this eastern wall of the Temple Mount. And on one section of the eastern wall, there's something called the Golden Gate or the Eastern Gate. Um, now, understand, Jerusalem has been conquered where the walls have been destroyed and rebuilt about 18 times. 18 times, that's a lot. In fact, when they uh, 
rebuild the wall. They don't have to go look for a rock. It's just all over the ground. They just start all over again. So you go to this ancient wall and you'll see rocks that have Herod's signature on it. The guy had an ego problem. He wanted his signature on literally every brick, as we might say. And you see the Herodian rocks built into this wall. Now, the Bible prophesies that Messiah would come through this gate, then the gate would be shut, and then the Bible also prophesies that when Messiah comes a second time, he is going to come through this gate. Let me give you the prophecy where it speaks of the gate being shut. It says, then he brought me back. This is Ezekiel, the 44th chapter. Then he brought me back by the way of the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces the east. That's the one we're talking about, the picture we just looked at. And it was shut. The Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. Jesus came down the Mount of Olives on Palm Sunday, and he went right through this gate. This is the gate that he went through. The Lord will go through it, and then it will be shut. Now, this current shutting that you have, it's been shut a number of times because the walls have fallen down, happened by a guy named Suleiman I. They called him Suleiman the Magnificent. You know, suppose he had an ego problem. You know, Carl the Magnificent, Solomon the Magnificent. Well, so he had the wall sealed up. Why did he have it sealed up? Because the Muslims in his day said, the Jewish people say, Messiah is going to come through that gate. Seal it up. You go to Israel today, you come to this old city, there's eight gates. Seven are functioning. One is sealed. You say, that's coincidental. I don't think so. I think it's God. It's a God incident. God allowed that. It's shot. But it's been open and shut a number of times. It's been closed since Suleiman in the 1500s. But actually, a American archaeologist who was studying at Hebrew University in 1969 was right outside that wall taking pictures of that eastern gate. It had rained for several weeks. The ground was real weak. And all of a sudden, the ground below him collapsed and he fell into a grave. And he said, I almost jumped out of the grave. You know, it was kind of spooky for him. But he had his camera and he took pictures. And what did he see? You can see the pictures. He saw the top of the eastern gate. So you see the wall that you see, the whole demographics of the old city has changed. You sometimes, when you go to Jerusalem, you walk down 15 feet to get to the stones that Jesus walked on. Why is that? Because the thing has been overthrown and fought. They've gone through 40-some battles so many times, and it's like any other city gets kind of raises up after a while. In 70 AD, when Titus came in, the Roman general, God said that the temple would be torn apart. Now, he said that they were not to set fire to the temple. Don't touch the temple. It was just a Roman custom never to hurt a temple. Why? Because you'd enrage and inflame the people. Don't touch the temple. Somehow it caught on fire. And if you've read about the temple, it's covered in gold just everywhere. And the gold melted and went down into the rocks. And the Roman soldiers wanting the spoil of war literally pried apart every rock, just as Jesus said, such that one stone would not stand upon another. It's just as the Lord said. 
And so that whole Temple Mount, you can go there and you'll see big piles of the original stones from the temple that Solomon, Zerubbabel, and Herod built around the outside. And that whole gate is actually underneath this wall and it's been shut since 70 AD. But God prophesies it's going to be open again. When? When Jesus comes back, his feet are going to step on the Mount of Olives, literally. All prophecy concerning his first coming was literally fulfilled. It's going to be literally fulfilled. He's going to step on the Mount of Olives. And this valley that goes north to south, it's going to open up north uh, north to south. It's going to open up east and west. And God is going to blow a hole and those gates are going to open up. Psalm 24. The king is going to walk through those gates. Now, literally, it's going to happen. But it can't happen until something else happens. This is what Jesus said on Palm Sunday. This group of people who said, hail him, hail him, hail him, waving their palm branches, hail him, hail him. A few days later, they would say, nail him, nail him. And so Jesus said on that day, for I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus said, you are not going to see me again, you Jewish people. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, he didn't recognize their appellation that day of praise because he knew how empty it was and how fickle it was. And all they wanted was a Messiah who would overthrow Rome, not someone who would be crucified. But a day is coming. I cannot come again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a messianic passage from the Old Testament. When is that going to happen? When are the Jews going to say that? When in the time of the great tribulation, they're going to recognize that the one they crucified, they'll look on him whom they have pierced, was indeed the savior of the world. So God has them measure it. Look at it again. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Now, there's a number of passages you could look at in Ezekiel and Zechariah, but very often when God measures something in the Bible, it's to show that he owns it. He owns it. We do the same thing today. Your neighbor says, that's my land. No, I don't think so. I think your fence is on my property. No, that's my land. So you call out a surveyor and he measures the property and you find out exactly who owns it. Jesus said, I want you to measure the temple. Uh, the, these, I want you two guys to measure the temple because God owns it. And I don't want you just to measure the temple. I also want you to measure the people worshiping in the temple. Why? Because he owns them. And he's not forsaken Israel. And it's during this time that they are going to say Jesus is Lord. And it's going to bring out the second coming. Yet we read in verse 2, notice, leave out the court, which is outside the temple. It's called the court of the Gentiles. And do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now, if Dr. Asher Kaufman is correct, and the third temple is north of the Dome of the Rock with 150 feet between it, it would make total sense to me why God would not want this temple measured, this, this section of the temple grounds measured. Why? Because the Dome of the Rock sits on it. And it's like God saying, I don't own that. I reject Islam. In either case, there's a time coming 
in history where Gentile oppression on the Jews is going to increase like never before. There are two important terms. We study them in Daniel 9. We study them in Romans 11. One is called the times of the Gentiles. The other is called the fullness of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles began, according to the Bible, about 600 years before Christ, when Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, came and carried the the Jews away into exile. And ever since 600 years before Christ, the Jewish people have been oppressed by the Gentile nations of the world. Even today, yes, they're in their own land, but do the nations around them and do most nations of the world love the Jewish people? No, they hate them. Why are they fleeing Western Europe and they keep moving into Israel? Because they're so hated by the Germans, by the French, by the English. There's an anti-Semitic spirit that just keeps growing and growing and growing. But the fullest expression of Gentile opposition will be in this final 42 months. Here's a chart that might help us to visualize it a little bit. Right now, we're in the times of the Gentiles, and it began with Nebuchadnezzar, and it will go all the way until the second coming of Christ. The other term I mentioned is the fullness of the Gentiles. We often call it the church age, where God is calling out a bride to be his own. And... Um, There's coming a time when that will be full. Right now, God is not using the Jewish people to evangelize the world because for the most part, they are in unbelief with a rare exception. Doesn't mean a Jewish person can't come to Christ. A Jewish man was instrumental in leading me into the kingdom. There's a partial hardening, not a total hardening. But there's going to come a time when all Israel will believe and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And that will happen after the fullness of the Gentiles is complete. The word fullness is a Greek word that means full to the brim. Right now, God is calling out a Gentile bride. Remember what James said at the Jerusalem conference in Acts chapter 15, bring up that verse. He says, Simeon, that's Peter's Hebrew name. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. That's what he's doing today. The people who are evangelizing the world, be they Jew or Gentile, are Gentile people. It's the Gentile nations of the world that are taking the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's coming a day when it will reach the brim. It could happen today in some church. It could happen in this church. When the final Gentile who's ever going to be born again is going to be born again in the church age. And then the rapture will happen. And shortly thereafter, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. All right, are you following me? All right, now I know this is not easy, but look, you'll get it bits and pieces the more you hear, and God will put it together for you. I know some, we're learning our numbers, others, we're learning biblical calculus, but don't let it upset you. Now, let's get into the text. You say, I wondered when he was going to start, all right? All right, three simple truths, they'll go pretty fast. First, the ministry of the two witnesses. Here in verses 3 through 6, John tells us about a description of their ministry, and then the defense of it. First, the description of their ministry here in verse verses 3 and 4. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, God has never left himself without witness. Even Paul, when he's dealing with the pagans up there in Lystra, he said, you've got no excuse. God has not left himself without witness. You've got his rain and sun that fall on you. That's the goodness of God. God has always, even in the worst of times, had a witness. Noah, 
in his family was a testimony in the dark days before the great flood. The prophet Elijah was God's witness and the gross days of idolatry. He's always had his witness teams, be it Moses or Aaron or Joshua or Caleb or Paul and Silas. And here in this seven-year period, he has these two witnesses. Two witnesses who will prophesy and testify for God, and they are clothed in sackcloth, what today we might call burlap. And they do it for 1,260 days. Now, how long is that? 42 months, three and a half years. And so when you read about this seven-year period over and over, whether it's in Daniel or Revelation or the words of Jesus, it's described in two halves, 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, or times, times, and half a times. Not by accident, because the Bible all fits together like a beautiful puzzle. Look at verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Right now, they're in the Lord's presence, and they are compared to olive trees and lampstands. And again, uh, most of Revelation has allusions to the Old Testament, 300 to the 404 verses. And if we don't know our Old Testament, it makes it harder to understand. I realize that. But if you remember from the prophet Zechariah, the the, the olive tree was uh, emblematic of the Holy Spirit and the lampstand, the light that he brings. And so these are two men who receive their power and shine their light through the inner dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Beyond the description of their ministry, look at the defense of their ministry. The defense of their ministry beginning now in verse 5. And if anyone... If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies so that if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. You say you think that will literally happen? Look, there was a time when there were literal dragons on the earth who blew fire out of their mouth. He can do whatever he chooses to do. If he can make a, a dragon blow fire, if he can make a donkey talk, a parrot, you know, vocalize my words, he can make humans breathe fire if he so chooses. And so these two humans, if you oppose them, you're a dead man. You're gone. It's too late. Look at verse 6. These, the two witnesses, have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So not only do they have authority over individuals, you personally oppose them, they have authority over the nations of the world. And so their ministry, which God is using as with all these judgments in the Revelation, to wake people up, to get some to repent, they have a ministry that strikes the entire earth. Now, who are these two people? Now, some have said, well, they must be Enoch and Elijah, because Enoch and Elijah were literally translated into heaven. Well, I suppose that is a possibility, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, because remember, while they were swept off the earth, what kind of a body are they in now? When does the resurrection of Old Testament saints take place? We'll study it later in the Revelation at the end of the seven-year period. That's what Daniel 12 says, and that's what the Revelation confirms. The Jewish people don't get their resurrected body. It's like if you die today, don't describe your life. Oh, he's up in heaven, you know, dancing, and you know, on the streets of gold. And He doesn't have his resurrection body yet. 
Absent from the body, present with the Lord. We're waiting for the body to be raised up. When Christ shall come back, the dead in Christ will rise first. He'll bring with him those who've departed. The dead in Christ will come back with Christ. The dead will rise, reconnected with the Spirit, and those who remain alive will be caught up together to meet them in the Lord. Look, Elijah and Enoch, if God wanted to give them resurrection bodies, I suppose he could have. But the resurrection of the Old Testament saints is at the end of the seven years. So that would certainly be an exception to the rule. But not to mention, they could not go to heaven in the body they left earth from. Even if God did want to give them a resurrection body, he would have to have done that in the air. Why? Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This mortality must put on immortality. This perishable must put on that which is imperishable. Some have said, well, maybe it's Elijah and John the Baptist. Since Jesus links their two ministries together, it's a possibility. I personally think if I were to have to choose some, almost everyone agrees it's at least Elijah. And I think the second possibility more than likely would be Moses. How do I know Elijah? I preached a sermon 10 years ago, the second coming of Elijah. You said the second coming of Christ or the second coming of Elijah? Second coming of Elijah. Preached it from Malachi chapter 4 because Elijah is coming again. Do you remember in Malachi chapter 4, the prophet said, behold, I am going to send Elijah, Malachi. He lives hundreds of years after Elijah is dead. And yet he writes, behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming in of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Before the coming great and terrible day of the Lord, we call it the great tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, Elijah is going to come back. That's what God says. That's what he prophesies. That's what he predicted. Remember on that occasion when Peter and James and John questioned Jesus and they say, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? In other words, they were getting this chatter from the religious opponents of the day. Jesus can't be the Messiah. Why not? Because the prophet said Elijah is going to come back first. And Elijah hasn't come, so he can't be Messiah. What they didn't see is there's two comings of Messiah. First, he comes as a suffering servant. Then he comes as a sovereign Lord where the governments of this world will be on his shoulders. And so they discounted it. So why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? He responds, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Jesus made it clear. Number one, Elijah is coming again. Yet in one sense, he has already come because John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then the disciples understood that what he had spoken to them was about John the Baptist. So Jesus makes this double-edged statement in the Gospels affirming Malachi's prophecy that it will happen. But on the other hand, John in one sense symbolized that. Now the Bible is clear. He is going to come, Elijah. So if he is going to come during the time of the great and terrible day of the Lord, well, couldn't this fellow be Elijah? Certainly could be. Not to mention, he has some of the same characteristics that Elijah had when he was here on the earth. What did Elijah do? He stopped the rain. How long do these two men minister? Three and a half years, 1260 days, 42 months, times, time and a half times. You paying attention? Come on now. How long did Elijah make the rain stop? Three and a half years, not by accident, same time frame. And so Elijah, he made the rain stop. He also called fire down from heaven. Remember, oh, let's go get Elijah. Send 50 men. 
whoosh, fire comes down. Send another 50, whoosh, third group comes. I don't know that I want to go and obey the king's command. Every time 50 go, they get wiped out. Who turned the water into blood? Moses. Remember Jesus when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration? And Jesus had said, ah, you guys aren't going to die before you see a glimpse of the kingdom. And who does he have up there in the top of the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. And by the way, Moses, he wasn't translated into heaven, yet you see him in that intermediate body that we get before, because we have some kind of an intermediate body before our body is raised, because the saints in heaven have some kind of a robe, and you got to hang it on something, but it's not our final body, all right? Look, here's the point. Doesn't matter who the two are. The fact is they are coming and they're going to do precisely what Jesus said. Secondly, beyond the ministry of the two witnesses, I want you to see the massacre of the two witnesses. Their massacre is described on two levels. First, the reason for their massacre. Notice, if you will now, in verse 7, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Now, the beast has many aliases in Scripture, and we've seen that. He's called the Little Horn, the King of Fierce Countenance, the Prince who is to come, a despicable person, the willful king, a foolish shepherd, the worthless shepherd, the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, the beast. But most people in America today know him simply by the term Antichrist. Notice verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Now, when you read the scriptures and you study the Antichrist in Daniel and in the Revelation, and we're going to get a very detailed study of him later on in the Revelation, you discover he's a real human person, made of flesh and blood, just like in you, you and me. And yet the scripture also links him to the abyss. Do you remember when we studied the abyss in Revelation chapter 9? Right now, if you're a demon, a fallen demon... A whole bunch of them have total freedom to wage war in the heavenly places. And so Paul says, look, your real battle is not your neighbor. It's not your mother. It's not your mother-in-law. It's, 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 fle- it's not flesh and blood. It's principalities and powers and evil forces. But there's a certain class of demons that have no freedom. And so remember when Jesus uh, deals with the Gerardine demoniacs and they beg him, oh, please don't send us into the abyss. Send us into these hogs. And so Jesus honors that. That's a sermon in itself. But here's the point. When you go into the abyss, everything stops. When does it unstop? Well, we studied it already in the ninth chapter. God sends an angel down, and he opens up the abyss, and a zillion demons that are so great, they're likened to locusts, they come and they taunt people for five months. And so this demon comes up out of the abyss. Now, there are only two people in all the word of God who's called the son of perdition. You remember who they are? Judas and the Antichrist. What characterized Judas? He was a real human. What else characterized him? That day when he took the sop, literally the devil came and inhabited him. I don't know if the devil literally inhabits the Antichrist or just one of his demons. It seems more likely to me the latter because Satan is not in the abyss and won't be there until the thousand-year reign of Christ. But this man is satanically empowered by demonic forces from the evil one. And so they oppose these two witnesses and they overcome them and they kill them. 
which by the way is a reminder to me that your life is not over unless you end it short by your own choice. The days that God has ordained for you, even before there was yet one, were all recorded in his book, that your life is not over until God's done with you. Paul could say at the end of his life, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. Now, sometimes God is done with us sooner than maybe later because we quit on him. I don't really need him there anymore. Look, you should be serving the Lord faith. I've seen a few people that I've done funerals for over the years, and sometimes I think, or just doesn't make sense. But then again, they quit on you three years ago. I couldn't say that at their funeral. But I think things sometimes I want to say. But you are indestructible until God's finished with you. Beyond the reason for their slaughter, the Antichrist hates them. Their message is the opposite of the Antichrist. They're exposing this man as a fraud. Secondly, the reaction to their massacre, verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. These people are so crude, so hardened, even today when some heinous criminal takes out a bunch of people, most humans, at least for no one else's sake but the family, allow a, a burial to take place. Not in this day. Here in the holy city, the city where Jesus was crucified, it's likened to the worldliness of Sodom, and it's likened to the pride of Egypt. And so we read in verse 9, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. I mean, talk about an insult. The peoples and tribes and tongues and nations, you could say the whole world. Now, I suppose God could have localized it if he pulled the rapture off in the third century. But think about the technology we have today. Wherever you are on the planet, you know what's happening in Tokyo and Moscow and London and New York and Beijing via the internet or social media or live camera TVs, the whole world is going to see these two people. They're laying in the streets. And what are they going to do? Verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth. These are earth dwellers. Two groups of people. Follow it carefully. We're going to see it in these two verses. First, there's those who dwell on the earth, literally earth dwellers. And that phrase, every time it's used in the Revelation, describes people who are hardened in unbelief. They've taken the mark of the beast. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Listen, this is a satanic Christmas of sorts. This is the devil's Christmas. You think our Christmas has become secularized. This event, people are going to exchange gifts with one another, celebrating, oh, they're gone now. The rain can come. We can drink the water. No more problems. Let's celebrate. They're in for a shock. Look finally at the miracle of the two witnesses. The miracle of the two witnesses. We first read of the miracle of their awakening. Two miracles are underscored. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. And they stood on their feet in great fear, fell upon those who were watching them. I mean, the big party doesn't last long, three and a half days. Can you imagine the peoples of the world are celebrating and probably have your big screen TV and come on over and let's get drunk. And you talk about immorality in that day. It will be so widespread. And then they're going to see these two people come back to life. 
and people are going to be gripped by it. Great fear will fall upon them. That's the miracle of their awakening. And then there is the miracle of their ascension. Look at verse 12. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud. And their enemies watched them. A loud voice speaks directly from heaven. Come up here. And they're carried away by, by angels in a cloud. It's an incredible thought just to consider and ponder. Like, like Lazarus, who's carried away by the angels. You know, when you go into the presence of God, you're, you're welcome there. And you're brought into that place by angels. That's one of their ministries. They've come out to render service for those who will believe. I've often thought of that in relation to my granddaughter. And one day God gave me just great comfort that she didn't go there into his presence all alone. But she went in there guided by some of God's holy angels. And these guys are taken up in a cloud. I mean, this is a real dreamliner, literally. And millions of people, they're just going to be awed. It's kind of like the rapture. But on the other hand, it's like the ascension. When they watched Jesus, not in the twinkling of an eye, but they watched him until they could see him no longer, like a balloon floating up in the sky. And you watch, I still see it. I st- you see, I see it. He's gone. And they're going to watch these two witnesses float away. And in that hour, verse 13, there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. It's a limited, localized earthquake. And God takes out a specific number, a tenth of the city. And the rest were terrified. The rest who? The rest who are not earth dwellers, who are confirmed in their unbelief, as we'll see over and over again as we work through these final chapters. The rest, what did they do? They gave glory to God. What's one of the functions of the 144,000 and these two witnesses? To bring unbelievers to faith. Why? Because God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so some will give glory to God. Now, how are we going to apply this passage to our lives? This is not just about some pie-in-the-sky future event. Remember, these are seven churches in the first century who are reading this letter. John is sending it them to strengthen them, to encourage them, and it's written for us as well. Let me suggest three applications as we close. Number one, persecution can be a platform to share the truth. Persecution can be a platform to share the truth. These two witnesses are hated by the beast, by the Antichrist. And Jesus warned that most of his servants, most of his pastors who preach the word of God will not be in some popularity contest. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Paul said, indeed, all, not just preachers, but all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Look, if you choose, not just by your life, but by your words, and there's where a lot of Christians in this age are falling. They say, I witness with my life, and they don't witness with their words. But by your life and your words, you live for Christ. I want to tell you, there's going to be some people who will talk behind your back. They won't invite you out to play golf anymore, won't have you over to the dinner anymore. He's got religion. He's got one of those fanatical born-again experiences. Let's leave him out. That's what happens. But there will be people in the midst of that who will be one to Jesus. I remember the first time I was ever really kind of persecuted. 
I'd been saved about six months. I was coming in on a Friday night into my dormitory, CLX there at Boston College. It was just shoulder to shoulder people, keg party, people just getting totally wasted. And as I came in with a Bible under my arm on that Friday night, this guy named Doc said, hey, look, here comes Brogy. He's coming from his Bible study. Hey, Brogy, have a beer. And he's trying to give me a beer. I said, no, thanks, Doc. That's okay. I have a beer. I said, that's okay. I'll give you a beer. All over me. Though I will never forget Doc because my last year at Boston College, one week before I graduated, I hadn't seen him in a year and a half on that campus. He searches me out. He says, Carl, one, I'm here for two reasons, to apologize to you what I did a few years back. But he said, my life is so empty, and I know what you have is real. Please help me. And he received Christ as his Savior. Listen, persecution is sometimes the platform that God uses to bring people into the kingdom of God. Second, I learned from this passage, it's not your responsibility to convert people, but simply to be faithful. Look, that's what these two witnesses do. And while those who dwell on the earth reject him, the rest, the non-earth dwellers, they gave glory to God. Look, some of you are trying to win a son, a daughter to Christ. Don't give up. I've seen sometimes the prayer of a parent or a grandparent answered at their funeral where the person gives their life to Jesus Christ. You just be faithful. Your job is to be faithful. God's job is to convert. Finally, our witness can only be effective if done in God's power. We saw that these two witnesses are described as olive trees and candlesticks, both symbolizing the fact that God had his hand on their lives. The olive tree there in Zechariah, it speaks of the power, the unction, the oil the Spirit of God gives, whereas the lampstand, it speaks of not of their unction, but of their function, the light that they shine. And so these two witnesses, under the power of the Holy Spirit, are light to the world. And some of us are trying to burn the wick without the oil. And it just doesn't work. If you burn the wick without the oil, if you attempt to do God's work in your own power, in your own human resources, all you're going to do is create a lot of smoke. And you hear me week after week, year after year, talk about our need to rely on God, the Holy Spirit, who lives in us so that he might empower us. Now, you may be here and you are not born again. That means you don't have the Holy Spirit yet. You will get him the moment you call upon Jesus in faith. But some of us are here, we're indwelt by the Spirit, and we need to obey the command given to save people to be filled with the Spirit. Because we've been lackadaisical, we've compromised in small areas of our life, and it's not always the big thing that short-circuits the power of God. Very often it's the small things where the Holy Spirit who lives in you cannot fill you. And today would be a good day to get things right. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you today for this text of Scripture. This is not simply what you have said. This is what you are saying to your people. Thank you that when you record history, you told us how it started, when you created the world in six days, and you've told us how it will end. You've given us the front and the end points. We're so grateful that we're not in the dark, left to believe in the phony, false theories of this world system. Father, I pray today for a believer who's here.
who knows you, loves you, but you're not really working in them as much as you'd like to, but you can't because of the compromise that is in their hearts. Thank you that as Christians, as saved people, that when we confess our sins, you are both faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us. Help someone today to do that. Ask the Spirit of God afresh to fill them, that they might witness, not just in lifestyle, but in deed and in word. Father, help us never to be dismayed or even surprised by the opposition that will come, especially in the evil in our day. Help us to remember that if they persecuted you, your son said they will persecute us. I pray today, Father, for someone who's here, whether here or in Granville or Hilton Head or live streaming on TV, and they're unsure that if the trumpet of God were to sound today, that heaven would be their home. Help them to understand that salvation is not earned. It's been paid for on a cross with the blood of Jesus. It is the gift of God. Help them by faith not to trust themselves to be their own Savior, but help them to come to Jesus, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. We'll give you the praise and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen.